you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and canna-curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. This is episode number 281. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis' favorite grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about Kevin Durant admits to getting high before a David Letterman interview, the mayor of London slammed by cops about his visit to an L.A. cultivation site, workers' comp claims reveal a boring trend, Atlantic City getting into cannabis tourism, legacy farmers and the regulated market, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. I'm going to do my story first because I should have done it yesterday, but uh, didn't have time. So last weekend was a big win for sun-grown cannabis. And it started Friday night at Woody Harrelson's new dispensary. My article comes from Forbes, and the headline is, Woody Harrelson Talks Cannabis at the Woods Dispensary Opening by Lindsay Bartlett. I had the pleasure of attending the grand opening party. Woody was there, and so was Bill Maher. They were all smiles the whole night. Woody climbed up on a table next to me, and then later in the dispensary, he was dancing on the countertop. Everybody was having a great time. A ribbon-cutting ceremony drew crowds, including Mayor Lauren Meister and Guinevere Morrill, the head of West Hollywood's Chamber of Commerce. West Hollywood has been particularly welcoming to cannabis businesses and even recently dubbed itself the Emerald Village. Um, Mr. Jason Beck is the president. Harrelson's cannabis-centric weekend culminated when he was the recipient of the Emerald Cup's Lifetime Achievement Award at the Ricardo Montalban Theater. In its 18th year, the 2022 Emerald Cup Awards honored fan-favorite brands, legendary cultivators innovating in the space, and second-generation legacy farmers from Humboldt and the Mendocino County areas, including Huckleberry Hill 
Farms, among others. Quote, it's unbelievable, Haroldson said at his acceptance speech. Who knew a lifetime of smoking pot could get you this, unquote. Side note, the Emerald Cup Award ceremony was an amazing success. The team really pulled off a miracle after severing ties with Green Street and their Green Street Festival, which occurred at the same time as the award ceremony. You would never have guessed that they only had a little less than two months to plan the event. It was amazing. Anyway, back to Woody and the Woods. It's gorgeous. He got a really nice area in the back that he hopes to turn into a consumption area. From Haroldson, quote, we do have the consumption license in process right now. I think we just need to get a stamp or something, and it shouldn't take more than two or three years. I'm looking forward to Jason Beck's take on that. When asked where he thought the industry would be in five years, Woody replied, quote, I would love to see it have federal legalization. Actually, it should be decriminalized completely because I don't know how the government gets to control it, you know? I can understand with something like alcohol, maybe. This planet doesn't kill you. God knows I've tried. You can smoke 45 pounds in a week and you're still going to be fine. The article closes with what he is featuring in his store. Quote, I really wanted to embrace the Emerald Triangle as much as possible. There are a lot of people doing great work. I don't like the indoor herb as much, chemweed, I, I call it. That's just not the way to go. To me, the outdoor, sun-drenched, sun-soaked, organic, hopefully will be the future, unquote. That's the article. Love Woody Harrelson and his store. It's great. Yes, no, the Woods, uh, fantastic new store. Congratulations to Woody um, and and the whole team on their uh, opening of that. Um, I, I was there as well for the uh, grand opening party that was on Friday night. I had a fantastic time and uh, wish them much success. I loved how this uh, highlighted sun-grown, Susan, like you said, and especially looking at with the amount of terpenes that we're finding in sun-grown sometimes versus other uh, cultivation methods. This was really cool, and especially him throwing his weight behind it. I really hope he's uh, very successful. We've got Nicole Buffong up from the audience. Nicole, did you want to weigh in? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, say the same thing. I'm so grateful that he... Um, that he acknowledged sun grown uh, because it's such a, it's such the better form of the plant. That's just my personal opinion. Uh, thank you so much for having me today, but I agree with him. Sun grown's the best. Indoor is far superior to sun. Yeah, I'm really just, just I'm facts. I'm glad that Woody came out so big for sun grown. He's really championing some small growers like Emerald Spear Botanicals and Huckleberry Hill. So, yeah, Woody knows what's fire. So um, with Woody and so glad to see what he's pulled off in West Hollywood. And it's great to see people with his profile come out so strong. Woody Harrelson is a fucking legend. And it was great to see him acknowledged for all that he's done for the plant. And um, I can't wait to go to the woods. I wasn't there for the opening last Friday, but I um, can't wait to check it out ASAP. I like Woody. I like sun-grown weed, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. There's nothing wrong with indoor weed, and just because it's grown indoors doesn't mean it's chemi. There's plenty of fantastic, organically grown, beautiful weed that comes from indoor cultivations. I agree with, I'm with Brandon. you, Brandon. I do. I agree with you, Brandon. I wish we'd stop that bullshit about indoor versus outdoor. It's cannabis. We all love it. You know, we have our favorites. Like, some of us, I really like sun-grown. 
Jason obviously really loves indoor. It's, you know, there's quality, there's booth. I mean, it comes in both, you know, you'll find it in both. You'll find shitty indoor, great indoor. You find wonderful outdoor, you find shitty outdoor. It's just really simple. Just follow Eric, the good stuff. Well, when you Eric, you're at- 100%. Oh, go ahead, Liz. Uh, you are 100% correct, and I agree with you too, Jason. I was just going to say, if you look at the sustainability issue and really overall at the whole network ecology ecosystem we live in today, I think often making sun-grown a choice is more sustainable. I'm, I'm going to push back on that. I don't I, I don't buy any of those uh, sustainability arguments um, until all of the do-gooders that only want to smoke outdoor for the sustainability facts stop drinking their fucking almond milk lattes. Fucking give me a fucking break. Yeah. <laughs> that's really that's really apples and oranges. No, it, no, no, it's it not, is- Susan, because we're talking about sustainability. And you can't say that you want sustainability for one uh, for one industry, but not sustainability for another industry. And the fact that almonds take up like 25% of California's water when California doesn't even take up a tenth of that is just not even an argument to even be had. And you can't and really, we, you can't really make uh, any points about anything, Susan, without uh, conservatives coming out with a little bit of what about it is. Right. Well, I think uh, we have Jason. Jason's <laughs> mixing up some oat milk lattes for all of us. Or I'm sorry. Yeah. Oat milk I'm down with the oat milk. I'm, I'm, I'm so down with the oat milk. I actually use that yeah, as so. my choice of, 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 of uh, uh, dairy or whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, but oat milk is much. What happens choice. when we run out of and oats? It, then we go to we coconut want milk. Nationally, if we want nationally available sun-grown California cannabis when borders are open, the almond industry needs to stop drinking all the water. The water needs to go to outdoor cannabis. My opinion: outdoor cannabis is a much more important crop than almonds coming out of California. A hundred percent. It should also go to the whole Dust Bowl in the Central Valley for all of our other food crops instead of subsidizing the almond industry and creating almond milk as a viable product because they have such a gross uh, supply of them. All right. Well, Almonds the- kill people. Weed doesn't. Facts. Yes. yes. Facts. That's a, we, did, that's, we did a new amendment. We there need are a- the cartels on both sides, though. Some serious stuff. We need a T-shirt. That says that. But let's keep the show moving. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as a co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. And really, uh, l- listen to Rico's TEDx speech. It's it's quite amazing. Uh I'm honored to know you, Rico. What you got for us today? Are you trying to make me cry my own tears on here? It ain't going to happen, Susan. (laughs) My story today is by Akash Murthy from uh, thesportsrush.com. Kevin Durant blazed one before in David Letterman interview. The Slim Reaper accepts he is high on cannabis on the Netflix show My Next Guest. There are several reasons the Brooklyn Nets are no longer in the this year's NBA playoffs, despite being early season finals favorites. Knocked out early by the Boston Celtics, the biggest surprise to a prohibition prohibitionists and haters everywhere is that pothead Kevin Durant was not at fault. One of the greatest players ever in the game, Durant flipped the industry on his head last offseason, announcing his partnership with Weed Maps and saying he'd be working with the digital green giant on a series of content-driven initiatives. Many questioned the waning star's motives as he was coming off an injury-plagued year and diving deeper into his 30s, a decade many pro bodies began to quit on them. 
But the 33-year-old veteran averaged 30 points per game, seven rebounds, and six assists this year. On paper, it's his second-best season since 2013 and third in his 13-year career as a pro. Remember, KD might be an open weed smoker, but teammate Kyrie Irving is the one who didn't show up to half their fucking games this season. KD recently dropped by David Letterman's acclaimed Netflix talk show, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction, and admitted to being high mid-interview. And I'll play this clip for y'all that people might misunderstand about it. To me, it clears the distractions out your brain a little bit. Settles you down. It's like having a glass of wine. Yeah. So did you smoke today? Yeah. And, and you're, you're just fine? I'm actually high right now. <laughs> uh, my experience that people might misunderstand. Yeah, they heard it. Uh, Durant's one of the uh, one of several big name U.S. sports celebrities now publicly supporting the use of cannabis, and as pointed out in the article, he's also one who plans to profit from it. U.S. Af- athletes have been going through somewhat of an herbal awakening lately, speaking out and asking their governing bodies questions that should have been asked for generations. Why they aren't free to govern their own bodies? That's a question we need to be asking as well. Especially now that we're on the cusp of federal legalization and cannabis has been proven safer than alternatives, both for recovery and adult use purposes. Major League Baseball has removed cannabis from their banned substance list in 2019. 2020, the NBA halted random THC testing before playing in the uh, infamous Orlando bubble at the height of pandemic hysteria and it's 2020 and kevin durant's high while interviewing with letterman why wouldn't he be it's the off season he's in full relaxation mode and healing after playing 55 hard games as a as a 13 year nba bet nba vet is legal and he ain't going to be tested for it I'm glad KD continues to push the normalization needle forward on several fronts, including for athletes and successful black men. I just can't wait for the day interviews like this happen and they're not and not much more is thought about them other than anybody taking a sip of whatever's in one of those famously opaque mugs. More top tier sports leagues are easing their cannabis policies and with U.S. federal legalization right around the corner, stars normalizing usage will only become more popular. My favorite part of this story has nothing to do with KD saying, I'm high right now. It's that he's letting the world know about his relationship with the plant on his own terms. There's Rigo Lamit, dopest dad on the street for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Interested what the rest of the team thinks about this. I love this story, Rico. This is great. Go Kevin. And it just, he's totally going to normalize it. And I just love this. Thank you. I agree, uh, Rico. I think that was great. And I love your your point of not just him stating the fact that he was high. Like you said, he's educating on it. He was sharing some insight and knowledge. And I thought that was a great point. I wonder what he was smoking. I don't know. Did he, stop, some, did, he, did he stop by Green Street yesterday, Jason? It was probably, it was probably, <laughs> probably some poof ass weed from Ohio. He had like a 2.5er. <laughs> I, I would like to say, uh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm still recovering from the flu, but I would like to say that he started off his conversation with, it makes me feel better, um, you know, when I need to unwind or anxiety. So it's still, again, guys, I know that we, we stop, uh, that we sometimes don't uh, flip it back on the medical side and the wellness side of this plant. But I think if more people start out with that wellness side and um, it, it, it normalizes for those people that are tend to um, not be so uh, supportive. So um, this is a great story and um, good for Kevin of, of feeling free and being honest, right? So it was good that he could be honest about, you know, what he's doing. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, Roz. I think 
especially when it also comes to working with lawmakers, the things they can wrap around their head around is the wellness aspect. Um, and I don't think that is a side of this industry that we push nearly enough. Amen, sister. Amen. The focus is the real deal. I, I do a lot of writing and whenever I get writer's block, I light up a joint and a 100% of the time the writer's block goes away. So focus is real. I agree with you, Susan. And my writer's block goes away, all my creativity returns, but then I just go to sleep. But you know what? But Susan, that's so like, you know, you, but there's a certain strand or there's a certain, you know, blend that you smoke that opens up that door for that creativity and releases that writer's block. And I would love to know, like, what is that? So, and maybe people in the audience want to know because there's certain, you know, uh, you know, certain uh, um, strains that, that can support certain things, that experiences that you want to happen. So I think it's pretty dope. And I think the industry is going to be moving more towards instead of, you know, leaning left sativa, leaning right indica, more about experiences. I want something that's going to give me some creativity. And then here it is. I think we're at time, but we've got Wayne up from the audience. Wayne, did you want to weigh in on Rico's story? Uh, I'm just joining. I don't even know what's going on yet. There Bye. Good timing. Bye. Good I don't know what's going on. Okay, let's keep smoking the news. That's, he's the industry's longest continuously running retailer. They call him White Gucci in Detroit, Gucci Blanco in Miami, and the Wizard of Oz all throughout Hollywood, where he has several different wizardry outfits and several different spells that he casts to free the world of boof as we know it. Up next, Jason Beck. What you got for us today, my man? Oh, yeah. Good morning, Rico. And happy, happy Tuesday. Today, I have some sad news for people like LeBron James and others who purchased all of their craft weed in Ohio. Because Ohio marijuana legalization effort has been delayed until 2023 under a settlement with state officials. Marijuana legalization will not be on the ballot this November's election in Ohio under the terms of a settlement. A group backing the effort said it reached Friday with state officials. The coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol instead said it will delay its legalization campaign until 2023. In exchange, the state officials have agreed to accept the more than 140,000 signatures the coalition already has collected instead of potentially making them start over from scratch. For anyone that knows anything, that's a really fucking expensive start over from scratch because of the amount that it costs to get one signature. The guarantees the this guarantees the validity of the signatures we've already gathered, and we've got a much clearer path if we have to get to the ballot next year, said Tom Heron, a spokesperson for the coalition. The coalition sued the state earlier this month after Ohio House Republicans refused to take up the marijuana legalization law the group had uh, proposed under the state mechanism called an initiated statute through which members of the public can propose new laws. The House GOP said the group submitted its signatures too late to be considered during this year's legislative session. Under the initiated statute rules, the public can force lawmakers to take up a proposed law change if they can gather the needed number of signatures, currently 132,887 signatures from registered voters in at least 44 counties across the state. If lawmakers didn't enact the law as written within four months, backers of an initiative statute then can collect the same number of signatures again to force it onto the ballot for the following November's election. 
The problem was that the coalition to regulate marijuana like alcohol fell short by 13,062 signatures in the initial uh, batch it submitted in December after elections officials ruled more than 87,000 of the group had collected were invalid signatures. The group gathered the additional needed signatures during a 10-day cure period, but by that point, the group had, had missed a late December deadline to force the state legislator to take up the proposed proposal this year. So now if the legislator doesn't act on the marijuana legalization measure by April of 2023, it will be on the November 2023 ballot as long as the group can collect the second round of signatures it needs a number to set off turnout for the most recent state governor election. The Republican-dominated legislature has signaled it has no appetite for legalizing adult-use cannabis, but making the ballot issue a likely focus. The delay in the legalization effort could have implications for the November election for governor, U.S. Senate, and other state and local races. Had it been on the ballot, a marijuana legalization proposal had the potential to mobilize voters supporting and opposing legalization, shaping the kinds of voters who would show up at the polls and influencing the issues that candidates would talk about. While backers of adult-use cannabis typically have leaned liberal and libertarian, the issue recently has attracted broader support across the political spectrum. Medical cannabis has been legal in Ohio since 2019 of January, and in part due to a preliminary 2016 ballot campaign that spurred the legislature to action. A full legalization ballot issue failed overwhelmingly back in 2015 as well in Ohio. And I'll tell you what, Ohio, I hope you can fix this problem that you have out there with your new adult use measure and actually have some real ace instead of these fucking bullshit 2.5 tents. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Having cannabis on the ballot brings out the younger vote, so they should uh, pay attention to that important have, do, voting do block. Do you have any real stats around that? Because yeah. I don't think that there really does. If it's uh, on the ballot. More likely to go out and vote, especially in the midterms. I think it would be interesting to see, Susan, if you're correct by finding out if younger voters would make cannabis a single issue uh, topic for them. Yeah, I don't. I don't think yeah. it is for older voters at all, but I think perhaps it could be a single issue. I, I'm going to do an article about it tomorrow. It's a 2016 Brookings Institute institution analysis. They're the ones that are saying that. But I will dive into that tomorrow. I just checked brodata.com, and you're 100% correct, Susan. They're the ones sending these smoke screens, Susan? It's a real thing. I've seen it. Sure. Common sense. Let you guys tell it. I'm not buying it. Nobody's selling it, Jason. It's a gift. Gary Chambers raised a million dollars in very small donations after his commercial. A million dollars is nothing in the political world. But okay. it's a lot off of one cannabis smoke. It is <laughs> damn near all of the, the cannabis lobbying money right. for 2021, right? right. But yeah, we're poor <laughs> over here, guys. Remember that. <laughs> but you know what? When you're, when you're running on a skinny budget and you add a million dollars that you didn't have before, that's a lot. So... Don't just I, I agree with I agree with that point, Roz. That that is hundred percent. When you're when you're when you have zero gas in your tank and you get filled up with a million bucks, you got a lot to run on. Except in the current times, a million bucks of gas in that tank. Except when it, it might get you back to Costco. Exactly, except but, when you look except when you look at what your opposition has to spend and look at their war chest and realize you don't even basically have a tenth of what they have to spend. This is why we need to get 
money out of politics. This is why money should stay in politics. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's right, keep smoking the news. All right, <laughs> Laura, I hear you, sister. Coming up oh next, my God. this pinup girl isn't just your ordinary man cave wallpaper. She's an all-around data cruncher that's known a thing or two about numbers and shit. An educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. That's right. It's Liz Rogan. What do you have this morning for us, Liz? Thank you, Jason. And greetings, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My story today comes from in the Insurance Journal by Don Jurgler. The headline reads, workers' comp claims from 10 years of legal cannabis in Colorado reveal a boring trend. So today, I'm sorry, my story highlights boring, but that's what actually makes this newsworthy. We're taking a closer look at workmen's comp claims in Colorado because Colorado has great data to examine these trends. Medical uh, cannabis has been legal there for 22 years and adult use for 10 So I'm going to start with quoting the first two lines of this article. Data on injured workers from the nation's most mature adult-use cannabis market is pretty boring. No excessive claims resulting from injuries suffered by stoned forklift drivers, high cultivators, or even dispensary workers who are hurt during a robbery, end quote. So Pinnacle Assurance, Colorado's largest workers' comp insurance insurer, compared the state's workers' comp complaints in the cannabis industry to other industries. And guess what? Big, huge yawn. So Randy Philibon, a safety and data consultant at Pinnacle, who mined the data himself, uh, was looking for trends, and he was really disappointed that nothing stood out. He said, quote, claims injury trends in the state's cannabis industry have been largely remained consistent since legalization in 2012, and it's really boring. It's pretty safe, pretty standard type of industry and to work in, very similar to other retail establishments, other manufacturing cultivation type of establishment. He, est- he expected some increased claims from employees getting injured in robberies and then filing a workman's comp claim, but nope. He posed that perhaps most dispensaries are heavily secured, with the majority of crimes occurring at night when employees have left for the day. They also looked at 420, the popular cannabis holiday, and found there was absolutely no uptick in driving issues at that point also. Cannabis cultivation does bring uh, a little bit more of these small claims because of cuts and hand strains. Those are the most commonly reported injuries in the, in the cultivation sector. They're mostly small claims. It, you know, um, basically the five most common injury causes in cannabis were strains, falls or slips, a cut, a struck by, which is being hit by something, or a strike, which is a person hitting something. Kind of interesting, uh, men aged 20 to 29 incurred 70% of the injuries in the state's cannabis sector, but I would pose that as most likely to the fact that I believe there are more men in the cannabis sector, but that would have to be looked at. Another finding uh, that Pinnacle came out with that was consistent with other industries, that was workers are most at risk in their first six months of employment, 38% of all injuries occur in that time. And three quarters of the claims occur during business hours and cannabis businesses had a low incidence of workplace violence, equating to fewer than 3% of the claims. And last but not least, motor vehicle accidents were responsible for the most severe and most costly claims. So I, this is kind of an interesting story. I would love to hear what you guys have to say on this. I personally disagree with some of the stuff, with the robberies and other things, but I am a person who looks at the data. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This is great. Cannabis industry is boring, according to insurance companies. Yay. Tell your lawmakers. 
I think this is a huge issue too. If you look at my brother works in a multinational uh, company and basically they always have issues, especially even just statewide because of the different laws per state. So he's always a little bit frustrated with that because he recognizes that people need to use cannabis, but he's also bound by this workman's comp insurance. So if something changed in this, I think this would actually free up employers a lot to have a little more control over that. Let's keep smoking the news. We have a lot of stories to cover. This full-time feisty redheaded conservative splits her days and nights between political strategy and baking delicious treats. But you know what? I never back down from going head-to-head with her on any of her conservative views or the fact that she still has not pr- produced a 23andMe showing that she has true Mayflower roots. The founder of Panoptic Strategies and our own very our very own Washington insider, Gretchen Gailey, is up next. What you got for us today, Gretchen? If you want documentation, Rico, I'm happy to provide it. Um, I'll, my I'll believe it when I see it. Long form only. Oh, it's She's going to show you her papers. It's like a birther thing all over again. Anyways, uh, from Marijuana Moment, uh, Congressman urges Transportation Department to reform marijuana testing policies for drivers. Uh, The university, uh, I'm sorry, the U.S. Department of Transportation Policies on Drug Testing Truckers and other commercial drivers for marijuana are unnecessarily costing people their jobs and contributing to supply chain issues. Uh, This is coming from Representative Earl Blumenauer, uh, which he put in a letter uh, the other day to uh, good old Pete Buttigieg, our uh, Secretary of Transportation. He cited DOT data showing that tens of thousands of drivers are being disqualified because of stringent drug screening policies around THC. He said that while nobody wants drivers impaired on the roads, there aren't tests that can detect active impairment. So people are being penalized for using cannabis while off duty days or weeks before they're tested. He said these disqualifications deny people the right to earn a living reduce the workforce when drivers are desperately needed, and penalize people of color and patients who legally use medical cannabis. This crisis must be treated with urgency. Uh, The congressman told uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg that his department should rapidly reform requirements for testing drivers and returning them to service, as well as develop an accurate test for impairment. Now, while Buttigieg hasn't specifically weighed in on the DOT marijuana testing policy, He did campaign on legalizing cannabis and decriminalizing other currently illicit drugs while running for president in 2020. Blumenauer said that the the statistics on drivers who've been disqualified over positive THC tests are troubling on their own. But the true impacts of this policy are likely greater, given that many people will self-select out of the profession knowing that drug testing requirements. Onerous requirements for returning to duty after a positive test also mean most of these drivers never return to work. Of 119,000 drivers prohibited from driving over the past three years, more than half have not even attempted to return. The Department of Transportation's current policies towards these drivers contributes to supply chain backlogs and delays in critical deliveries across the American economy. Uh, This goes on and on, talking a bit more about uh, Blumenauer's uh, urging of the Department of Transportation to come up with a new drug testing policy and actual technology that would be able to detect uh, THC in the system, um, not based based on um, whether or not it's active or someone has just consumed in uh, recent hours. Um, I, I like that Earl is going after this. I think Earl doesn't have a chance in hell here. I think Buttigieg is going to be strictly, uh, extremely hamstrung 
um, until there is some type of technology that can be used to actually detect impairment. Um, and the DOT is not going to put any efforts towards making that technology until cannabis is federally legal. Uh, so this whole situation is a giant catch-22 um, and is going to go nowhere. It is an issue that needs to be taken care of. Uh, when I was on the Hill, I did work for uh, uh, the chairman of transportation, um, and this is definitely an issue that has been thought of before, um, and I was on the Hill uh, so this is something that uh, definitely needs to be looked at. But really, until there's some form of legalization, um, it's not going to go anywhere. This is Gretchen for State of Cannabis News Hour. Gretchen, I agree with every single thing you said, except for the portion that you think that it's a, a real situation. I do not believe that drug driving on cannabis is a real I fucking situation. There was no problems in the 70s, no problems in the 80s, no, 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 no. no problems in the Jason 90s. Let me clarify. I don't think that drivers are driving impaired. I think it's a real problem that people are staying out of the transportation industry because they're concerned about the drug testing. There's that's definitely a, fair, a, a that's, shortage that's, of drivers. That's fair. I can, I, can, I can accept that, and I can back that 100% with you. I mean, if, if, if y'all want to blame like all these death and murders on fucking safe blank, uh, safe banking, what's to stop all these motherfuckers from blaming all these, these driving deaths from fucking high driving? They already do the do that. Rico. They, they, already, it's, it's, they already have the been, same, they already have been doing so, that. So you're doing, total, so you're doing the same disservice. No, you're doing the no, no, same no, no, fucking no, no, disservice no, 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 not tying not, a bunch not, of other shit to what it ain't. fucking all, Rico. Not oh, a fucking yeah. all, okay? Because you Get have, mad. you cannot compare... You cannot compare those two at all whatsoever, bro. That's total fucking ridiculousness. The fact that you even not think tied that to is other. total ridiculous. They're not tied can, to can, each other. Can I, can I get a ding, ding, ding? This story go ahead, go ahead, Gretchen, go about, ahead. The story is not about driving impairment. The story is about the, the current drug testing policy keeping drivers off the road. No one is suggesting that there are hundreds of thousands of drivers who are all impaired out there with their big old semi-trucks. But what I'm saying is somebody is going to make that argument. Gretchen. Even my dogs are annoyed. What? What, I'm, what I'm saying is somebody's going to make that argument and it's going to come up and uh, both of them are wrong. Well, you can't blame whoever, whoever, whoever makes that argument is a fucking idiot, Rico. And for you to even think <laughs> to compare the safe banking situation with the driving situation just proves your ignorance as well. Well, now, oh and hold God. on, hold on. This has already come up. If you recall, this was an amendment that was added to the Moore Act. Uh, came, I forget his name. It was out of a North Carolina congressman who said that he didn't want full legalization to happen until there was a test to test for your uh, drug impairment what on party? the road. So this is definitely what an issue that will. We'll, we'll come up again. What party was he? Uh, I do believe he's a Democrat. So spicy. All right. Eat that, Rico. <laughs> I'd like, like to see the proof of that. It, it, it's coming okay. along with my name. Mayflower papers, Rico. I can't wait. To all right. All right. All right. Let's relight the room. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any exceptions in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's right. If Bono had an anaconda. His name would be Ericus.
Slareda. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he has a stunt double named Eric S. Slareda, known for his good deeds and being a true steward to the outdoor plant. This freedom-fighting farmer's friend and Bono's, not to mention an award-winning writer, journalist, event producer, and content ninja. Here to give it to you straight, it's Eric Hesleraida. What do you have this morning for us, Eric? Muchas gracias, Jason. Thank you for that. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. Uh, my headline is from the New York Times, and it's, they have sold pot for years. Now they want to go legal. Can they? And there's a subhead for legacy cannabis entrepreneurs becoming a taxpaying regulation observing business has its challenges. So I'm jumping right in here. I was always known as the guy that loved cannabis, said Lou Cantillo, who grew, grew up selling it to friends on Coney Island. That love came with a cost. When he was a teenager, he said he was chased and roughed up by a cop for smoking in the stairwell of his building, one of several encounters with the police around that time. But despite the risk, Mr. Cantillo kept selling as an adult, even during his brief career as a boxer. When Byron Bronson left Seattle for Rutgers University to study theater in 2004, he looked around at the low-quality pot available in New Jersey and knew he had to do something. Having dealt on the West Coast since high school, he quietly started importing strains from Washington State, soon gaining renown for his distinctive selection. Attitudes towards legalization have changed since the early dealings of Mr. Bronson and Mr. Castillo, uh, Cantillo, who met in New York City through a business associate in 2013 and decided to join forces. Although what they still do is illegal under state law, that could soon change as New York passed a legalization bill last year. The owners of Buddies are interested in joining the legal market as soon as the law allows it in New York, which will soon follow New Jersey in embracing recreational cannabis sales. Our goal has always been to go legal, Mr. Cantillo said. But as they prepare to apply for a license, which can be a complicated and expensive process, they said they feel conflicted about making a transition. For legacy businesses like Buddies, that is those that made up the industry before legalization, the cost of legalization of legalizing may outweigh the benefits. A licensed business comes with startup costs, high taxes, administrative demands, and fierce competition from well-capitalized companies. Chris Alexander, the executive director of the New York Office of Cannabis Management, wants businesses like Buddies in the regulated industry. If you're not successful at pulling the legacy market into the legal market, you limit your tax revenue and the money you can redirect to impacted communities, he said, referring to the disproportionate number of black and Latino New Yorkers whose lives have been damaged by the enforcement of cannabis laws. Those issues are reflected in the state's legalization bill, which has focused on social equity and has been heralded as the most progressive of its kind. The regulations being drafted by Mr. Alexander's office will determine who has access to the industry and whether businesses like Buddies will be able to get and stay licensed. In April, the state did pass a bill allowing already operating hemp farmers to get cannabis licenses early in order to supply retail businesses as soon as they open. The rest of the businesses making up the industry, from dispensaries and delivery services to wholesalers like Buddies, are still awaiting guidance on how to apply for licenses. For Buddies, a major benefit of legalization is conducting normal business activities, contacting creative agencies, meeting with landlords, licensing specialized software, without hiding what they do. However, it comes with complications. States prefer to license businesses that can demonstrate they will succeed, but Buddy's revenue is off the books, so without an official pardon from the government, it can't actually show its earnings or dedicate uh, those earnings towards startup costs without raising eyebrows at the Internal Revenue Service. There's no statute of limitations on taxes, said Jason Klimek, a tax lawyer specializing in cannabis at Barclay Damon. Startup money is also difficult to come by. 
Mr. Bronson, who was raised by a single mother, and Mr. Cantillo, whose parents are immigrants, do not have much financial padding to put toward the business. Mr. Cantillo argues that independent businesses like his that have been in the illicit industry for years should get their shot right now instead of the big money players getting licensed first, which is what happened when uh, Washington and Colorado legalized cannabis, and here in California as well, I will add. It doesn't make sense to allow corporations to take over when we put our lives on the line to do what we love, he said. It's the Chads and Brads taking over. It's people that have no influence in the culture, but when they see the economic opportunity, they seize it, Mr. Bronson said. If Buddies goes legal, and that is the plan for the moment, Mr. Bronson and Mr. Cantillo hope to expand, employing more people from the legacy market and offering regular benefits like health care and retirement contributions. I think you have to go licensed and legal to hit that route, said Mr. Bronson, who has watched a few of the top legacy brands in California successfully make the transition. Best of luck to Buddy and other legacy operators, and that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. It's a deep dive in the article, but I, check, I suggest checking it out. Let's keep smoking the news. That was a great piece, Eric. Definitely appreciate that. And if anybody who has not read that one, it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome read. So up next, she's an attorney at law focusing on the intersectional point between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. And she also does a phenomenal job documenting all these motherfucking adventures on her social media, which is owned by her, 50%, and the other 50%, Mark Zuckerberg's, because he owns half of all of us. Up next, she is the host of Shall We Talk podcast, Shalina Pinnell. What you got for us today? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Psilocybin Truffles Company Completes Third Export from Netherlands to Canada. According to Yahoo Finance, Red Light Holland Corp., an Ontario-based corporation engaged in the production, growth, and sale of a premium brand of its psilocybin magic truffles is pleased to announce that it has completed the third export of the company's freshly harvested high-grade psilocybin truffles from the Netherlands to Canada under a Health Canada psilocybin import permit awarded to Seacrest Laboratories, Inc. in partnership with Shaman Pharma Corp. Shaman Pharma is a federally registered Canadian corporation with the mission to power outstanding psychedelic life science innovation, accelerating time to market through its portfolio of assets. Shaman launches and consolidates revenue-driven pharma biotech life sciences ventures focused on supply psychedelic drugs and novel active ingredients. Seacrest Laboratories is a CGMP pharmaceutical laboratory in Montreal specializing in highly regulated narcotics, including psychedelic, holds a Health Canada-controlled drugs and substance license, and received federally issued imports permits for the restricted drug psilocybin. Seacrest has also been listed as a provider of psilocybin for the Special Access Program in Canada. Seacrest Laboratories received 200 of Red Light Holland psilocybin truffle kits, a total of 3 kilograms of psilocybin truffles grown in the company's farm in Horse, the Netherlands. Shaman Pharma, working in conjunction with Seacrest, is developing CGMP-compliant scientific methods and protocols of quality control, analysis, and extraction aimed at industrial-scale commercialization of medical-purpose psychedelic substances in this emerging uh, pharmaceutical sector. Together with Red Light Holland, the companies are setting the pace at which regulatory requirements are exceeded of opening a new realm of possibilities for disruptive healthcare innovation. Sarah Hayes, CTIO of Red Light Holland, stated, our previous testing has shown that our truffles are suitable as a source of active pharmaceutical ingredients for scientific and potentially medical and therapeutic purposes, and we are excited to continue the testing and R&D with our partners at Seacrest. We continue to move towards our goal of creating a move towards uh, creating 
creating a standardized consistent dose from naturally occurring Psychos, I'm sorry, occurring psilocybin truffles, which our market research shows people are interested in. This can potentially benefit both the recreational and medicinal markets, and we continue our path to work within the careful means of the regulatory process with reliable partners in hopes of pushing for safe, responsible access to the company's naturally occurring psilocybin by testing, learning, and educating the public and hopefully governments right here in Canada and across the world. Alex uh, Grenier, CEO of uh, Shaman and the president of Seacrest, said this third shipment marks the continuation of the previously announced progress achieved between Red Light and Seacrest. Notable points that we ha- um, are that we have a 100% success rate while increasing quantities. It looks promising for a certain maturity and scale in a supply chain that we have not been achieved until now. We set out to demonstrate beyond any doubt that patients and responsible adults in general should be able to reliably and safely access psilocybin from natural sources. While much research remains, so far there doesn't seem to be any impurities or toxins present that would disqualify qualify a natural source. Actually, to us, it is rapidly becoming more interesting to study than pure psilocybin. Simply put, it is a richer platform for discovery, and we would hate to miss out on something that na- that nature has potentially perfected. Making larger quantities available to the scientists enables deepening the research into the composition of the raw materials. The scientific protocols are now expounded for the, for the detection and quantification of other active ingredients known to exist alongside psilocybin and psilocybin. Uh, while expected to be present in very small quantities, they could prove to have large modulation effects. This could arguably establish a new realm of possibilities between simple dosage of psilocybin, where a near infant number of combinations exist between the various compounds. My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. It's amazing how the psilocybin industry is rolling out. I was at an event recently, and I got, I was gifted three packages of psilocybin candies and they and this packaging was amazing. I don't I don't know how they're doing it or are they just trying to be first to market it in a market that doesn't exist? Were you gifted those uh, uh treats legally trap and uh, grandma? Yeah, no. trap and grandma. <laughs> no. This no, a, but the pa- <laughs> yeah. This is a great story, Shalina. Thanks for bringing it up because I love that we're seeing the medicinal effects and also making sure it's safe. So it kind of ties up a lot of things at once. I'm curious because I thought that psilocybin itself is um, technically not legal there. And so I'm wondering how that works. How do they say it's a truffle uh, and it's psilocybin truffle, but if psilocybin's illegal? Because they add butter. There's something in the Health Canada exemption that they're allowed. I don't know necessarily about the truffles exactly, but I know that they're allowed to um, use psilocybin in some way for patients, though, for medical uh, reasons. Let's Thanks. keep smoking the news. I can't believe it's not yeah. butter. You just add truffle to the butter, Rico. Uh, yes, there's a... This, yeah, this beard was born and bred in Michigan. Maybe that's why this beard commands such a presence, because, baby, it's cold outside. So cold that the beard was compelled to move to sunny Long Beach, California, where the beard received a law degree known in the bar exam as the Brandon Beard Award for high scores. This intellectual IP attorney and CEO of Fruit Slabs is none other than Brandon Dorsky. Let's go, Brandon. What do you have this morning for us? Thanks for having me today. My headline comes from Marijuana Moment. It's Justice Department tells Supreme Court to reject marijuana case while acknowledging legalization momentum. Two Minnesota cases concerning reimbursements for medical marijuana resulting from workplace injuries are potentially before the Supreme Court after Minnesota ruled that federal prohibitions 
preempted state law and denied their reimbursement claims. The plaintiffs, as well as advocacy groups, contended that because the employers are not required to possess, manufacture, or distribute cannabis in violation of federal law, that simply providing workers' compensation is not preempted by the Controlled Substances Act. The Solicitor's General's Office filed an amicus curiae brief on Monday recommending that the Supreme Court not take up the case and acknowledge the matter would be better addressed by the legislative and executive branches. The Department of Justice says when a federal law such as the Controlled Substance Act prohibits possession of a particular item, it preempts the state law requiring a private party to subsidize the purchase of that item. Their letter also stated that, quote, the court decisions rest on a more complete rationale that unnecessarily explores the scope of federal aiding and abetting liability outside the context of any federal prosecution. To me, the letter smells like the DOJ knows that the Supreme Court is in a position to legalize marijuana through eliminating federal preemption under the CSA, and the DOJ does not want that to happen. The filing acknowledged that several state courts have weighed in on the issue with deferring opinions. New Hampshire and New Jersey have ruled that reimbursements to medical marijuana patients can move forward despite the federal prohibition, whereas Minnesota and some other states have not. The Justice Department's position is that the inconsistencies at the state level do not warrant the Supreme Court's review and argue that, quote, a state law order that compels third parties to directly subsidize petitioners' possession of marijuana on a medical use rationale would amount to overriding the legislative intent consistent with the Controlled Substance Act. This argument ignores that federal patients that were legally able to get their cannabis from the government in violation of the CSA. The Justice Department also argued, quote, no state court of last resort has issued a decision that provides an appropriate backdrop for this court's review of the preemption issues that are inherent here, and that the Supreme Court, quote, would benefit from further development of the relevant preemption questions in the lower courts before potentially addressing them itself. Nonetheless, the Justice Department signaled that the Supreme Court would benefit from further development of the preemption questions. Um, and in doing so, seem to acknowledge the inevitability of this issue coming before the court. So why not address it now? Well, addressing it now would be bad for Big Pharma and the private prison system. The Department of Justice said, quote, the legislative and executive branches of the federal government are best situated to consider any potentially tailored measures to address specific instances of interaction between federal and state marijuana laws. Except the federal government keeps punting on this issue. The DOJ acknowledged that the House passed legislation shortly after these case rulings, but ignores the fact that the Senate did not turn that legislation into law. Clarence Thomas himself, a Supreme Court justice, has publicly signaled his frustrations with the federal government on this subject. And it's clear from his comments that he would likely vote that the CSA is unconstitutional, at the very least claim it is unconstitutional as applied to state medical marijuana laws. And that might be precisely why the Justice Department does not want the Supreme Court to hear these cases. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I, I agree with you that the Justice Department does not want this to come about, not for the same reasons that you think. I think uh, they do not want it to come about because um, we are just totally and completely unprepared for federal legalization um, when it comes to the regulatory standpoint. No one is prepared. No one is ready for this uh, to be let out the gate. Um, and that's why they do not want it to come about. I don't think it's big pharma and the prison system keeping us down. I think they're just not ready. And that includes the Biden administration is just not ready. Legacy, you, cultivators, and, uh, legacy cultivators and operators, I think, are prepared for a national market. Oh. 
and are ready to go. Of course we are, because we've been trapping our whole life and sending shit everywhere. So, of course, we're ready for interstate trade and commerce and for the floodgates to be lifted up and not be prosecuted for it. But the government is not ready for us. 100%. I, I totally believe the industry is ready to go. Let them out the gates. Knock yourselves out. I'm saying from, like Jason Beck says, from the government standpoint, they are not prepared. Mm, meh. Brandon, do you really think that the legacy uh, people are fully prepared for this, honestly? Because as a owner of a small nursery, the interstate part scares me for competition. Uh, there are people in this country that have the skills and experience necessary to grow quality cannabis for the entire country. And we don't need the federal government holding our hands, telling us when it's ready for it to be ripe and good. The people know how to do it and could provide the medicine in meaningful quantities. The, Liz, the industry, Liz, the industry, so, sorry, the Liz, industry, Susan. the industry can't survive another layer of taxation. Liz, grow better weed and you won't have to worry about competition. It's just sometimes scale and what you can work with. And then also when you get on a really large scale, you lose that, that craft part. You know, I am in here in Santa Barbara. I see enormous greenhouses. I mean, this is corporate cannabis. This is a commercial crop. I think, I think from the regulatory side, Susan, not the taxation side, I think no one is prepared to deal with consumer safety issues. And I know there's plenty of wonderful, reputable folks out there in the industry who want to sell great product. But there's also a ton who just want to sell the shittiest stuff they have uh, and make money. And that needs well, to be a consideration people need to take care of. It hasn't slowed them down in pursuit of money in the past. And I don't think it should slow them down now. Legalize the shit and let the government catch up later on. It's what America does. We love, a good, we love a good catch up. Story. I fully support us legacy people and hope we are ready. And I want us to thrive. It just It's a little concerning to me. So thank you for the feedback, guys. Most of. All right. So she's the CMO of Event High, the disruptive digital event platform that paved the way for great area parties, even when Eventbrite was way ahead of their time in cancel culture. Her latest project, she's co-host and founder of Blunt Brunch, which has totally shifted what successful women in weed look like on a Sunday morning, productive as fuck while riding a wave of Category 4 crossfade. Up next, Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us today? Bring us <laughs> Good morning, everyone. So today's article is Atlantic City Gambles on New Jersey Legal Weed to Boost Tourism and Draw Conventions. This is by Suzette Par Parmley uh, from New Jersey Advanced Media. So Atlantic City is gambling on cannabis and casinos to boost tourism and become an East Coast convective convention mecca. However, since uh, casinos are under the federal ban on weed, cannabis businesses cannot be located in any of the nine gambling halls. So the city is looking outside the casinos, primarily along Atlantic and Pacific avenues, uh, with the hopes that cannabis will boost its tourism. Now, with the adult market expanding soon, two large operators are ready to present uh, and ask to the Atlantic City Council to add adult use sales alongside their medical cannabis licenses. Ianthus spokesman uh, Ethan Anderson in emails to Cannabis Insider stated, we are talking about the economic health of Atlantic City, and we see the eventual expansion into adult use to be the most impactful to the city's economic well-being. So why Atlantic City? They have more than 20 million tourists who visit each year. They host a 
They host to full-time population of almost 38,000 people. They have nine casinos with 17,000 hotel rooms. They have an iconic boardwalk. And on top of that, the state Cannabis Regulatory Commission gave approval on April 11th to seven medical dispensaries, also known as alternative treatment centers, to expand into adult recreational cannabis sales. These sales actually started on April 21st. Um, now, going more into the article, uh, Kashawn McKinley, Atlantic City's Director of Constituent Services and Special Projects under Mayor Marty Small Sr., confirmed the two sides were working together to bring adult cannabis sales to the seaside gambling town. Uh, McKinley said, uh, Ianthus entire in- entry into adult recreational weed ties in with the mayor's small vision of making Atlantic City the convention capital of the East Coast. Um, they said, they want the cannabis industry to come in and together they will rise. So what are the challenges? The options of where to locate cannabis businesses in Atlantic City are limited. The city is home to casino owners with properties nationally and globally who must comply with the federal ban on cannabis and cannot host any weed businesses. The same also applies to Tanger Outlets, the Walk City, uh, the, the Walk Atlantic City, the Outdoor Mall that occupies three blocks downtown, and the Sheraton Atlantic City Convention Hotel hotel center. Um, So in favor of this, Atlantic City is an impact zone, which under the new state cannabis law gets priority for certain cannabis licenses, as well as resources and funding from the Cannabis Regulatory Commission. The city is accepting six cannabis licenses as of now. Um, However, they are only opened up uh, applications for four of those licenses, and there is no cap on micro licenses. They also look at Atlantic City being three hours away from 50 million people as a added benefit uh, alongside their beautiful beaches and boardwalk, and they really want to put together an experience. They just don't want people to come in and get their cannabis and drive home. They want people to consume there in safety, so they're really putting a focus and people are asking for cannabis consumption lounges. They also want ancillary things like museums, the cannabis tours. Um, They want anything that's really creating these experiences and want to make this the best cannabis destination. Uh, If if Ianthus receives city council support, the operator would then go before the Casino Reinvestment Development Authority for a use variance. Um, And then also uh, McKinley said Ianthus will have the option to add a consumption lounge uh, if approved to expand into the adult recreational market. Now, for those who are interested in tuning in, the Atlantic City's uh, Council is this Wednesday. The meeting starts at 5 p.m. and can also be viewed at Zoom um, or be viewed via Zoom. This is Adelia, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. It's interesting that these stories get uh, get covered when it's not a story yet. They're just talking about maybe doing it like Sacramento, uh, that the story about Sacramento smoking lounges. It just goes to show you that people really want cannabis events. They want uh, cannabis consumption lounges. It's a big story. I love they're, this. They're, they're definitely, they're definitely going to do this in New Jersey and especially in Atlantic City. Um, I know that I've had a few conversations um, with legislators out there, and this this is definitely going to be a reality out there. Watch out, Las Vegas. Yeah, Vegas I don't think so. I think <laughs> I think it's a hail mary for Atlantic City. That city's been busted, and they're I guess they got to try anything, so they're looking to weed. I hope it can help them out. 
Weed will save the day. But we've reached the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. Big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country, you take us deeper into the story, add color, and sometimes provide amazing sound bites. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. So that's one.